Well, I'm excited this morning because today we get to look at the big enchilada. Uh, this is the main event. So we have been in Luke for nearly two and a half years. As we're getting toward the end of it, today we come to the crucifixion. Next week we'll be looking at the resurrection. What that means is you get Easter twice this year. That's pretty cool, right? So if you can have Christmas in July, you can have Easter in August. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to be looking at those things. Now, uh, each of the four gospel writers, they look at the same truth, but they have slightly different angles on it, right? So all four of them are going to cover the incarnation and some of its teachings and miracles and crucifixion and resurrection. But each of the four writers have a slightly different angle. And so they have themes. As we've gone through Luke over the last two and a half years, I hope you've picked up on some of those themes. Here they are. One of the themes has been that Luke is writing history. And by that, if you remember, here's the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. You guys all remembered those verses, right, from two and a half years ago? Sure you did. Treated. Well, what you see from that is Luke clearly has no concept that he's writing a philosophy or a religion or a group of morality. He's writing history. These are things, events that happen, and he's reporting them. Okay? So Luke is all about history. Now, uh, secondly, Luke is about marginalized people. As we went throughout his gospel, it is quite clear that Jesus is leading an upside-down kingdom. That it's not for the big shots. It's not for the rich and the powerful and the influential and the famous, and not even for the religious folks. But instead, as we've gone throughout Luke, what we saw is that Jesus seems to have a focus, and Luke captures it. Jesus is for the unimportant, the forgotten, the overlooked, women, Children, widows, poor, broken, sick, blind, cripple, prostitutes, sinners, traitors, criminals. Luke is for the outcasts and the outsiders because Jesus is for the irreligious and the prodigals. And also for the Gentiles and the Samaritans. That, that's a, a racial thing. That, that it's not just for Jews. It's for those outside. It's for everyone. And so Luke is quite clearly about that. And so Jesus came and he said, those right there, those are my people. And I will build my kingdom out of them. And that's what's been going on for 2,000 years now. Oh yeah, the rich can come, but they must come poor. And the powerful and the famous, they can come, but they must come humble. Because Luke is capturing this aspect of Jesus that he came for the marginalized people. And then a third theme throughout Luke is that it's all about redemption, not about religion. See, if Jesus came, all this fuss about Jesus for religion, that's so stupid. 
We already had religion. We had plenty of religion. Religion is all about try harder, work harder, so that God will like you, maybe, if you work hard enough. That's religion. And if Jesus came as just another religious messenger to say, work harder, who cares? That changes nothing. More religion changes nothing. What we needed as a savior. We needed somebody who could come and fix what we broke. We need somebody who could come and fix what we couldn't fix. We needed a savior. Restoration, reconnection, relationship with God. What we needed is redemption. And so instead of a religion of try harder, Jesus came and he said, fear not. I will fix this. I will fix it. And so he came and he died and he rose. That is his incarnation, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. That was all about redemption, not religion. And this changes everything. I'm going to go back over those themes of Luke because as we look at the crucifixion account today, what we're going to see is that Luke wildly has his themes on full display. They are in the spotlight. And so let's pick up the account. We're in Luke chapter 23, verses 26 and following. Starts out this way. It says, and as they led him, that's Jesus, as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other criminals excuse me, two others who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. There they crucified him. Now I'm going to pause there for a moment because in those four words, there is a lot of information that is taken for granted. See, none of the four gospel writers focus on the gory details of the crucifixion. Have you ever noticed that? It doesn't give the details. And that's because in that day, everyone knew what a crucifixion was. And so when they said that, they're like, hey, I got it. That's enough. I don't want to hear the horrible details. It's gross, right? So it'd almost be like if I said, hey, a guy got ran over by a train. Do you want me to explain it to you? They're like, no, that's kind of gross. Like, I I don't need details. I know what that means, right? But what if 2,000 years from now, when there's no more trains, and somebody reads that and they go, what's a train? We've got to explain some detail. Oh, there were these tracks and these huge locomotives and these engines. And if it hit a human body, here's what would happen. We'd have to explain it. That's kind of what's going on this morning. They, Luke's audience, they knew exactly what a crucifixion meant. But for us, I think it's, it benefits us to have a little bit more information. <laughs> I thought about showing clips from The Passion of the Christ. Have you seen that movie? Because you know, like, you know how like when you get to the end of a semester or a year of class, whatever, and the teacher's tired, they go, oh, screw it, watch the movie. Right. <laughs> just put it up there. And as a class, you're like, this is great. And the teacher's like, oh, this is great. <laughs> They're just tired, right? 
So here we are coming to the end of Luke, and I'm like, oh, let's just watch the movie. No, I'm not going to do that because if I show clips from The Passion of the Christ, this becomes an R-rated sermon because of the horror of what took place. You see, the Persians invented crucifixion. The Romans perfected it to a horrific art form. It's an execution, probably the worst execution form ever known to humankind. It's specifically tailored and designed to make it very long and very painful and very humiliating. That's what they were going for. It was so bad that uh, everybody would fight it. So they had to soften the criminal up before they were able to nail him to the cross. And in part, that's why they did the scourging or the flogging. You remember Jesus went through this. Pastor Jared had that passage, I think. What that means is they would take the criminal and they would stretch him over like some logs. So his, his back was just pulled really taut. They'd rip the clothes off his back to expose his skin. And they would take this whip that was like a wooden handle and it had multiple whips coming off it. And into that was woven pieces of bone and metal and stone. And they'd take that and they'd beat his back. Now at first they would, they would just hit down. And they were ten, like you tenderize a steak. They're just going to soften that flesh up. And next what they would do is they would let it wrap around his torso and pull. And that stone and that bone would just shred flesh from bone. At the end of the process, Jesus' back would be in ribbons. Sometimes ribs would break, sometimes ribs would come out, sometimes internal organs would be exposed. That alone was just terrible. People died from just that. But that was not to be Christ's end. He was to be crucified. Now, the, the flogging took place in the city. Crucifixion usually takes place outside the city. And so the next what they would do is they'd take the crossbeam, not the upright, not the full cross, just the crossbeam part, and they'd put it on his shoulders. That weighs about 40 pounds. And then he'd have to navigate these narrow city streets to get out to the place where they would crucify him. Well, of course, from what he just went through, he's exhausted. He collapses. He can't do it. So they press into service this guy named Simon. Hey, dude, pick it up. Go. Follow Jesus. And so he has to carry it out for Jesus to a place called the Skull. Evidently a little knoll out, just outside the city gates called the Skull. In, in Aramaic, it's pronounced Golgotha. If you translate Skull into Latin, it's Calvary. If you've heard those names used interchangeably, that's why. So they get out to the Skull and... Uh, now Jesus is to be nailed to the cross. So he'd start out by putting that cross beam down and laying the guy on it. And they would nail, put big old spikes right through his hand. Not his palm. If you go through the palm when he hangs there, it'll rip right out. And you don't want that. So, so you go through right down here. A lot of nerve endings. Incre could you imagine a nail being driven right through there? Go ahead and touch it if you want. Imagine a nail being driven through there and it's both wrists, boom. Just incredibly, incredibly, incredibly painful. And then they'd lift that crossbar up and put it on. The, the upright would usually just stay in place because this would be a common execution place. They'd reuse them. But the crossbeam, boom. And as it dropped onto it, a lot of times the guy's shoulders would dislocate. Very painful. Very, very painful. Now, humiliation was part of the punishment. So the, the criminal is stripped completely naked and staked up there for all to gawk at. It's always done in a very public place, usually on a main road. And the crime would be written out on, on some wood and be tacked up above him. In this case, Jesus, the king of the Jews, that's to mock him. <laughs> Look at you, king of the Jews. 
but also to declare the crime because it's to deter others, say, hey, you don't want to do this. You don't want to go here. It's humiliation. Uh, the, the guy's bladder and bowels would release, so you'd be covered in your own urine and feces. And we have this image of, of somebody being crucified up high. No, usually it was about at eye level, ground level, and that's so that people could come up and jeer and taunt and mock, and that was part of it. It was designed to be humiliating. But humiliation is just punishment. This was execution, a very terrible execution. Sometimes people would die from dehydration or blood loss or shock, uh, but not often. They, they tailored this. They wanted it to last a long time, and you would die by slow suffocation. What would happen, you know, after the crossbeam went up, then they would pull the guy's legs up, and, and they would put a spike right through both feet into the upright. And as you would hang there, your body's exhausted, blood loss, all that, and your body would slump. And when you get down in that position, it's really hard to breathe. And so you'd start to suffocate. So in order to, to catch a breath, you'd have to pull up on the spikes in your hands or push up on the spikes in your feet. Can you imagine how painful that would be? It would be excruciating. That word means out of the cross. X out of cruciating. That, to say that a cross is excruciating is redundant in words. It is so painful that we invented a word for it. It's excruciating pain. But you'd have to put up with that in order to grab a breath. But it's so painful, then you would release, and then you can't breathe. So then you pull up, and you go back and forth, back and forth. Sometimes people lasted for nine days. If they wanted to speed up the process because something was going on, and they wanted it to be over with, they'd come and they'd break the guy's legs so that he couldn't push up as much. A slow, excruciating suffocation. It was so horrible that, uh, that the Romans reserved crucifixion only for the lowest classes and slaves and political crim criminals or captives, very violent criminals. Roman law said you could not cr uh, crucify a Roman citizen. We don't do that to our own. It's too horrible is the idea. Rarely would they crucify a woman. If they did so, they crucified her backwards so she faced the cross because they could not stand to do this kind of thing to a woman and look her in the eyes. We can't watch that, so we, they turn her backwards. Horrible, horrible stuff. The point is that it is not a nice, warm, religious idea. Let me ask you this. How do you feel about this image? What if that were the symbol of our faith? What if that's what we projected on the screens up here or, or you know, that new sail over the patio out there that there was an electric chair carved into it? Wouldn't that be weird? Okay, how about this image right here? You understand that's far, far worse. It's horrific. And God, in his sovereignty, chose that period in history, while crucifixions were the form of execution, he chose then to come and die for us in our place. By choice. When we celebrate communion and we say, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, that's what we're talking about. It's incredible. Well, now that you have those happy historic details... Uh, and you're really regretting eating that second donut. Uh, let's, let's keep going with the passage. We're in Luke 23. We're going to continue in verse 33. 
It says, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. That's Luke's account of the crucifixion. Now, he is, during that time, shining a spotlight on the fact that it's history, it's for marginalized people, and it is redemption, not religion. And I want to look back through those things. Like, let's start with the history. So Luke's account of the crucifixion, he, he knows he's not writing fiction, he's not writing myth or fable or fantasy or fairy tale. He knows he's writing real events that happen in real time. He's writing history. It's dripping with historic details and eyewitnesses. Did you catch how he named Simon of Cyrene? You understand that was completely unnecessary. He could have just said, as he did in other places, like, and the guards pressed into service some other guy to carry Jesus' cross. He says Simon of Cyrene. That's really specific. Why? Scholars believe that what would happen is if somebody had passed away, Luke didn't name them, it didn't matter. But if somebody, when he was writing his account, was still alive, he put them in there and basically saying, go look them up and ask them. He's, he's an eyewitness. And so he talks about this Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene was a province in northern Africa. And there was a Jewish population that lived there and he probably traveled back to Jerusalem to worship at Passover. And he ended up carrying Jesus' cross as an eyewitness. See, there is no serious historian that doubts that Jesus of Nazareth lived, that he was crucified, and that he died. That's not up for grabs. The question is, what do you do with that? Was Jesus 
some cult leader, some religious fake leader that finally got his comeuppance. Thank God. Got rid of him. Or, or was he the son of God? The son of man, the chosen one, the Messiah, our Savior, our Lord, who came and died in our place for our sins to offer us forgiveness. See, history is changed not by a body of teaching. History is changed by the body of Jesus. A real event in history. If God came, if God took on flesh and we crucified him, like that's kind of a big deal. It's not just another religious movement. Christianity is not just about ideals and morals. It's built on events, historical events like the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection that happened in history. And here's the thing. If those things really happened, then Christianity is true. It's life. It's everything. But if those events didn't really happen in history, then Christianity is false. It's a waste of your life. It's nothing. What that means is Christianity can't be Christmas and Easter true. You know what I mean? Like it's got to be 365 days a year true or zero days a year true. There's no sense in which it can be two days a year true. It can't be like that. Luke is writing not religion, he's writing history. And it's so unique that this is what all history is about. All history prior to Jesus pointed forward to him, everything after points back at him. This is the anchor of all history. This is why history exists. Luke is writing history for us. It's history. You know, there's a reason why we date our calendars by this. All right, so it's history, right? Now, secondly, uh, it is for marginalized people. I don't, did you catch in the account who fared well and who fared not so well? And not so well, the, the rulers mocked Jesus. That's verse 35. Those would be the religious rulers of the Jews. Powerful, rich, religious. It also said the soldiers mocked him. That represented the strength of Rome. Politics, military might. So, so the, the big dogs of religion and power weren't faring very well in the story. Who did come out okay? Well, first there's this little Simon of Cyrene guy that carries the cross of Christ. Some little guy. And then after that, there's Jesus caring for the daughters of Jerusalem. Say, man, if they do this to me when the wood's wet, imagine what they're going to do when the wood's dry. He's caring for the women of Jerusalem. And then after that, Luke records one of the criminals who hung next to Jesus on the cross came to faith in Christ. Now understand something. Sometimes we say the thief on the cross, right? You don't crucify simple thieves. It's an overreaction. So this would be a violent criminal. The worst of the worst, death row, kind of like this is a bad, bad, bad person. And yet he comes to faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus welcomes him into paradise. Luke is the only one that records that. Why? Because he's focusing on marginalized people. Bad people, Jesus says, come. Come. 
And then after that, Jesus dies. And and did you notice who the very first post-crucifixion worshiper of Jesus was? The centurion. A centurion is like a special forces, like uber soldier in the Roman army. Okay? Now, now this guy would be a Gentile. That is a non-Jew. So the very first worshiper of Jesus post-crucifixion is an outsider to the Jews and to Jewish religion. Welcomed in. And then Luke ends his account by focusing on the women, the female disciples looking on. Now, Ashley, what he said is this. It says, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. That means it was a mix of both men and women. For after all, Christianity is for both men and women. Jesus was a dude, a man, like the, the baddest, the toughest man to ever walk the face of the planet was Jesus Christ. Yes, yeah, for men too. But Luke is intentionally, he doesn't have to mention the women. He can just say all the acquaintances. That includes both. Why mention the women? After all, you understand, in their culture, women were unimportant, they were forgotten, they were overlooked. You would never mention the women. Luke writes them in. Because Christianity is for the marginalized people. He's making a point over and over again. It's for the overlooked and the outcasts and the unimportant, the messy and the marginalized, the undeserving. It's for them. Not for the big shots. You know, uh, a story is told of Charlemagne when he died. Charlemagne's called the father of Europe. It's because he united most of Western Europe. First time that had been done since the Roman Empire. And when he had died, the funeral procession came to the cathedral, but the entrance to the cathedral was barred by a bishop. And he stood there and he said, Who comes? (laughs) The emperor just died. Everybody in the whole region of the city knew who, who was coming. Who comes? And the herald cried out. He said, Charlemagne, Lord and King of the Holy Roman Empire. And the bishop said, Him I know not. Who comes? The herald was a little bit taken aback. Uh, and so he tried again. Plan B was this. Charles the Great, a good and honest man of the earth. Him I know not. Who comes? And the herald figured it out. And he said, Charles a lowly sinner who begs the gift of Christ. Him I know. Enter. See, if you feel broken and needy, like you're a lowly sinner who begs the gift of Christ, then Christianity is for you. But if you feel like you got all your stuff together and God is lucky to have you, then religion is for you, but Christianity is not. Jesus came for the marginalized people. And when he came for us, he came to offer us the third theme there in Luke is he came to offer redemption, not religion. And and you can see this being teased out a little bit because they keep mocking Jesus saying, hey, save yourself and we'll believe in you. So like, if you're able to get yourself down off the cross, God boy, then of course you're in and we'll believe in you then. Save yourself and we'll believe in you. But here's the thing. Jesus wasn't looking to save himself. He was looking to save us. I don't know if you caught that the the crucifixion of Christ was bracketed. It was bookended by his innocence. Last week, Pastor Jared gave a great sermon, talked about Pilate. Pilate declared Jesus is innocent. And then after he died, the centurion declared Jesus is innocent. He's clearly innocent. 
You don't crucify innocent people. Why did he die? It's because he was innocent, but we are guilty. He died in our place for our sin. Our sin must be paid for. Back in the Garden of Eden, God said, when you sin, you will die. Death is coming. So we have an eternal debt, an eternal death penalty to be paid. Now, God cannot just wink and sweep it under the rug. If he does that, he's not good. He's not just. He's not God. It must be paid. And either Jesus will pay it or we will. And we can't afford to. And so Jesus pays it for us. I think I shared this quote with you recently. It's worth repeating. It's really good. John Stott said this. He said, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Now think about that. It's really good. I've done it my whole life. I, I, you know what? Never mind, God. I got this. My idea, not your idea. I'm God. You're not done it my whole life and so have you and it's where all human brokenness in this crappy world comes right from that the essence of sin is man substituting himself for god while the essence of salvation is god substituting himself for man that was my death on the cross and jesus stood in my place and so when they say save yourself look if he saves himself he doesn't save us he could save himself, but he can't save himself and save us. And he came to save us because the debt must be paid. And so it is not the lack of power that kept Jesus on the cross. It is the presence of love that kept him right there for me. But think about it. What if Jesus had like identity crisis issues and needed to prove himself, right? And so what if he flexed and came down off the cross to prove who he was? And in that case, we would know he's the son of God and we'd have an awesome religion and all of us would die in our sins. And that would be a problem. Instead, all our sin went on Jesus on that cross and he stayed right there. Did you catch that darkness part? It was from noon to 3 p.m., three hours of darkness. Well, maybe that was an eclipse. The longest eclipse we know is seven and a half minutes, not three hours. And eclipses happen during a new moon. Passover always happens on a full moon. So it's not an eclipse. This is all human sin, and, and right on its heels, the wrath of God that goes with that sin being poured out on Jesus, and things got dark, really dark as he took it all upon himself. But the result was beautiful. The result was, did you see that it said the veil of the temple was torn? What's that about? When the temple was the veil, and that represented the separation between sinful man and holy God. Separation between us, that we have broken relationship. And when Jesus paid for our sin, that veil tore, and it tore from top to bottom. Not bottom to top, that's our effort. That's religion, didn't happen that way. It was God's effort, and it tore from top to bottom. And that symbolized now the separation is removed, God pours out, and now relationship with God is open again. Oh, but you know what the Jews did? They sewed it back up insistent upon religion and trying to deny the crucifixion ever happened. What if that were true? What if the crucifixion never happened? What if we had Luke chapter 1 through 22 and it stopped there and we don't have the crucifixion? 
And in that case, what we would have is a wonderful example from Jesus, one that we never really keep very well. We'd have great teaching from Jesus that we break all the time. And then we'd all be sinners, and we all die in our sin, and we would have religion, but not redemption. And we would have to change the title of the series to Luke, This Changes Nothing. Nothing. See, Jesus didn't die to give us a religion. He died to give us redemption. So he took our place on that cross. It is redemption, not religion. And this changes everything. Everything. All right, so what do I want you to do with that? Well, you, uh, all of us have a choice to make. You know, on that, that knoll called the skull, there were three crosses. I don't, have you ever driven down the highway and you see three crosses along the side? Isn't there like some unwritten rule somewhere that the middle one must be yellow and the other two are white? Why is that? Who said? I don't know, but that's always the way it is. But there were three crosses on that hill that day. And the middle one was Christ, and it's the one that opened relationship to God back up to us. But then there are two crosses on either side, and one mocked and one worshipped. And you must choose. One of those crosses will be you. Okay? You'll die either way. We're going to die from this planet. I think you know that, right? One-to-one ratio on that one? Okay? You're going to die. But the question is, will you die as a worshiper of Jesus or die as a mocker of Jesus? And one of the criminals insulted Jesus. It says he railed against him. The other one, this is what he said. Look back at this. He said, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what he's saying in that statement is Pilate is not the last judge. That that this time on earth is not the final chapter, that it doesn't have to end like this. Soon we are going to meet God, and he's saying, do you not fear God? You're going to stand before him. And he said, we are justly condemned. That is, I am a sinner. I can't blame my parents. I can't blame my culture. I can't blame my personality. I can't blame my circumstances. It's me, and it's you. And we've messed it up, and my sin deserves the cross. But this doesn't have to be the end, because the Holy One, Jesus himself, is being crucified. And he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. That means Jesus is coming back, having already paid for our salvation, coming back to get us. And so what that criminal did is he put his faith, his hope, his trust, his life, he put it all in Jesus' hands right then and there. Now listen. If, when the criminal died, he went and stood before God, and God pulled out those, uh, those cliche balance scales, you know, and put the good deeds on one side and the bad deeds on the other side, the criminal loses. He's a horrible person, and after that, he died, and he never did a good thing. Fortunately, those balance scales are not biblical. You know what's biblical? The cross. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. That's it. That's it. The criminal was a bad guy. Jesus was a great savior. And so Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
you got to choose. One of those crosses will be yours. You'll either be a mocker or a worshiper of Jesus. You're going to die either way. The question is, what will come next? And it depends upon that choice. I'm hoping some of you will trade in today your mockery and become a worshiper of Jesus and enter that relationship. You'll die either way. It's what comes next that counts. So here's Luke, the crucifixion account, but really the whole thing, look at this. Luke is being very clear that Christianity is not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done. It's not about being good people. It's about a great Savior. It's not about church. It's about the cross. And it's not about religion. It's about redemption. That's what Luke is saying. And then at the very end of that, you know, that centurion started worshiping Jesus. And we're going to have a chance to join in that worship right now and worship our Lord because this changes everything. Let me pray for that. Father in heaven, I want to thank you right now for what you have done for us through the cross of Christ. Father, thank you that you did just not scream at us to try harder and work harder, but you sent us a Savior in history for messy, marginalized people just like us, that you would extend to us redemption, not religion. And for that, right now, we give you praise. In Christ's name, amen.